Hello and welcome to Front and Nationwide. This is the Athletics' dedicated Blue Jackets podcast. Aaron Portsign with you. Allison Lucan is here. Hello. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Nicole Kraft, journalism professor at Ohio State, director of the Sport and Society Initiative. Hello, Nicole Kraft. How are you? I'm very well and very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I I'm sad to say you've been incredibly busy the last year uh, and beyond with with unbelievable amounts to sort of digest and help the rest of us digest. And that's why we wanted you here uh, today. You you look at these things through a very specific microscope and teach kids uh by the hundreds at ohio state so maybe we, you can you can help educate us here this is a another strange time for the sports world uh and yes the regular world bleeds into the sports world jacob blake shot seven times in the back by police in kenosha wisconsin and i hate to to say it and sound dismissive and i don't but it's disgusting and ridiculous how Frequent it happens, here we go again. Um, Wednesday night, the Milwaukee Bucks boycott, or Wednesday afternoon, boycott their afternoon game. They just didn't come out for warm-ups. A uh, protest for a lack of action. What's going to happen in Kenosha? What is going to be the response in Kenosha? Uh, Other NBA games canceled that night. Three Major League Baseball games canceled. Five Major League Soccer games canceled. The NHL played. Uh, Thursday games have already been postponed. The WNBA has already canceled. There's a, a whole bunch of cancellations coming. Who knows when it's going to get, quote, back to normal. And, of course, that is part of the problem. There can be no normal when this continues to happen. Um, again, Dr. Nicole Kraft, thanks so much for being with us. Um I hate that it cut. We'd, I'd love to have you on here to just talk about the Blue Jackets because you're an expert in that field too. Um, but we've got some some questions for you, and you know, and here we go. Um, where to begin? How bad? Let me ask you this first. How bad does the NHL look for continuing to play on Wednesday? Now they're, they've canceled tonight's games Thursday. I don't think they're going to play Friday either. How bad did it look for them to continue to play Wednesday? It looked pretty bad. Um, you know, the NHL has made such um, such an effort to come across as being inclusive and, you know, fostering, um, supporting diversity. You know, we, we've had, uh, you know, celebrations. We just had the voting for the Willie O'Ree Community Award. And, of course, Willie O'Ree represents uh, – you know, if you would, diversity in the NHL. But we also know that the NHL has been woefully behind in really having equality. And this would have been an opportunity for the league and the players to stand up and say, um, you know, this is an issue that that belongs to us too, that if we don't all own it, then none of us can fully own it. And we have the opportunity to, to make a stand with our brothers and sisters in athletics. And instead, what they did was say, um, hey, we're in a bubble. We didn't really even know this was happening, a few people said. Um, right. And I just that's it's difficult to believe. I mean, if, if that was really the case, um, then I think it, it maybe symbolizes why we're in the shape that we're in, if we really can dismiss this in such a way. 
So I yeah. think it, that the league um, lost an incredible opportunity. I think it's it's you know my understanding from from reading. Um, is that the players uh, made a stand and there was actually a request by um, the the players who represent diversity in the league to say, look, we this is not happening and that that was ultimately supported by the other teams. But um, I don't want to say it's too little too late, but it was a noticeable gap in what should have been a unified front. Yeah. And now, of course, the NHL finds himself in a very difficult spot because, as you said, when they decide to to do the right thing and not play Thursday, then it looks like they're, you know, it looks like they're, uh, I don't want to say placating, but it doesn't seem genuine. And yet it's better than the alternative, I think, to continue to plow ahead and and not play. People like to diminish these, uh, well, especially the NBA, I think. So, of course, my Twitter feed is mostly full of hockey players, so not necessarily basketball players. They just got a ton of people last night saying, "Who cares? Is any anybody going to notice?" And I'm and I'm thinking to myself, "What is what a silly take? What a stupid take? What a take that probably really means something else." Um, I think that's it's people trying to say something else. The NBA is a ten billion dollar industry. It, it people notice, but how powerful are these strikes, Nicole? And, and what what are the 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 far-reaching implications of these? What kind of message does it send? You know, we had a, a kind of a, a sample of this when Michael Brown was killed um, in 2014 and the Missouri football team said they were not going, they were going to come out against this action. And it, and it was sort of that first little blip that we'd seen of that in that team orientation. We'd, we'd seen individual efforts that had been in, in the scope of history, incredibly, you know, well-respected. So Muhammad Ali, you know, Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos and, um, right. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, all of these people who have taken stands in the past. Um, but it's through the lens of history that we admire what they've done when they were actually doing it. Uh, they were persecuted beyond comprehension. And of course, Colin Kaepernick is the latest um, and, and certainly most prominent example of that in the near term. Um, so I think that that what we're seeing now is a real unification of the voice of the athlete. And we're going to see it, I think, across professional ranks. We're going to see it across student athlete ranks. And I know that that term, uh, some people bristle at that term, but um, the unified voice of people who have such a level of voice in our community. I mean, we, these are the people who we look to uh, for for entertainment, certainly, but certain, but we have other levels of respect for them that transcend any politician, uh, that transcend really any actors or, or anyone else who would have a public space and a public voice. Mm-hmm. Very few people have the status of athletes at this point in our society. And so when the athletes stand up, and I agree with the term that you used, this was a strike. This was not, uh, you know, people who say this was a, you know, they have all kinds of different terms for it, but this was a strike that said that we are not going to perform for you while this behavior is affecting all of us and, and we need to be the ones that take a stand in order for behavior to change. That is going to be, you know, you just talked about the norm and, and going back to a normal. I think we are seeing what the normal will become um, and that's going to be a really challenging thing for a certain portion of our population to come to grips with. Nicole, one of the, you know, both Porty and I have been able to be in your classes. And from my experience, it's such a diverse group of, of young people, sexual orientation, racial identities, so, so many different professional backgrounds and goals. Hockey is such a predominantly white sport. I mean, what do we need to challenge ourselves to see about the realities 
of where we are with race relations and specifically with the black community. And, and when you see this intersection of sport, you even have athletes in your classes. What is the unique experience for the black athlete that, that leads them to have to now fight this fight when maybe they shouldn't have to? You know, the, the black athlete is, um, it's such a, a dichotomy in our society in the sense that we have this elevated level of, of great respect for their abilities and, and the, the physical engagement that, that we get from them, the, the joy that we get from watching someone who's so talented performing for us, for lack of a better phrase. But, you know, we, it goes back to, to the, the proverbially great line of shut up and dribble. Like, mm-hmm. we, we have not been accepting right. as a society of them as saying, look, you know, my brains matter as much as my brawn and, and or my talent or my skill. And now we're this is this is going to be the reality that we must not not just face, but we must embrace it. And I, you know, I'm looking at the announcement that went out from the Hockey Diversity Alliance, and it was signed by two, four, six, eight, nine people. Um, you know, think about well, the NBA is going to send out documentation. It's not going to be signed by nine people. It's going to be signed by the, the, you know, large quantities of, of athletes who are want to stand up and be counted here. Um, you know, I've been in hockey a long time. My son played hockey. Uh, you know, I've had the great fortune of working with John Hofferman, who fosters diversity in hockey better than anyone in this country. Um, and, you know, I, I'm aware firsthand of, of the, the racial inequity and the racism that exists within hockey and, and players of color who have really been subjected to just absolute overt and, and incomprehensible attacks based on the color of their skin. And I think until hockey you know, doesn't think about those instances as being one-offs just because the majority of players do, are, not, um, are not players of color, that's we're not going to see any change in this league and it's going to continue to struggle um, behind a movement that's going to just run right over it because this movement will not be stopped. Nicole, one of the things you do as well with, with your SSI initiative is, is you educate and you have special sessions on topics and a big theme around this movement, even before this recent series of events has been, we as non-blacks don't put the burden on our black friends and our black colleagues to educate us. There's work we need to do. What resources would you point those of us who are not as familiar with the struggles of the black community, the challenges that the, the black community is asking us to see? Where should we be doing this work? What should we be reading? What should we be listening to? What should we be watching? Um, I mean, there, there's so many, you know, resources out there to uh, understand the struggle of of black athletes and and people who have taken the stand, you know, before this, you know, some of the people that I mentioned earlier, you know, watching a, a documentary like um, 13 and, and understanding the ramifications of, uh, you know, since the beginning of, of our nation, how we have, um, we've, we've really just completely stymied an entire population of people. Um, I listened to 1619, which is just the most phenomenal podcast um, and oh, series yeah. by New York Times Magazine, looking at the very first uh, enslaved people who came to this country and how we have done nothing but enslave those the, the, the generations subsequently. Um, you know, and I think all of those things are important to, to embrace them and, and to experience them and to try to uh, make them part of who we are. Um, but the biggest change has to come in our everyday existence that we have to stand up. We, 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 I, I don't, this is such a horrible thing to say. And of course, we're not able to buy tickets to things right now, 
but there will come a day when we will be able to buy tickets, except maybe we don't. If there's, if you're facing a NASCAR situation where, you know, uh, Bubba Wallace is, is faced with the racism, he was, maybe you're not going to go to a NASCAR race or you're going to support it in a different way, or you're going to take the tack that you don't, um, you know, provide support to NBA teams who aren't going to stand behind this. I mean, we have to stand up and say that, you know, as humans, we are going to support that there is no uh, equity until we all have equality. And, you know, we can talk all we want about um, the terminology of, of Black Lives Matter, but, you know, I've seen it so many times that Black Lives have not mattered for so long that we can't combine this with any other effort. We have to focus on the needs that are in front of us now and we have to move forward in a way that proves our commitment. Um, and, and it's going to be a commitment as a change of existence, not just a change in time. One more for me, Nicole, you mentioned this earlier and, and how this was a player driven initiative in, in the NBA. We know that certainly and in the WNBA who have been at the forefront of this for so many years. And now it's looking that way in the NHL. Also, from from a sports and society perspective, why is that so key that this is coming from the players and it's not a league mandated thing or it's not a league or an owner even made decision? What What is the power these players are harnessing? They're harnessing the power of, of, of numbers and commitment and the, the organic nature of this movement is one that transcends any individual team or any even um, collective environment like a league would be. And, you know, we can't, we can't avoid the obvious, which is that the majority of owners are white. The majority of general managers are white. The more, majority of people who work in the front office of any professional team are white. And so when decisions are made from that perspective, it's often, well, this would be good for us to do now. This would look good. This would have you know, the right look for us. This isn't about look. This is about life and death. This is about if we don't stand up now, then there's not going to be a future to stand up for. And it's saying that you know, as much as these athletes may love the sport that they do, and, and they're so unbelievably gifted, and they have such uh, an enormous um, gift that they provide to the rest of us who enjoy sports, that none of those things matter as much as moving forward this movement that is so long overdue. And they're willing to give up all of it in order to move it forward. And I think that's a really powerful statement. When you're willing to give up your livelihood, and you're willing to give up the status that you have, uh, you know, what Colin Kaepernick did, you know, he gave it all up. If you, you know, I know people will argue with me, but he gave it all up for a belief that he had. And if, if you're willing to do that, then that's how things move forward when your voice gets to be loud enough. We'll take a short break and we will be back on the other side. You're listening to the Front Nationwide podcast. Aaron Portsline, Alice Lucan here. We have Dr. Nicole Kraft as our guest. Um, one thing that, that I keep coming back to, and, and you touched on this just a little bit, these leagues, I, I, these leagues continue to set up initiatives, and I think they've made they've made significant strides internally and in what they want to project uh, outwardly. But I feel like so much, and, and I don't want to, to, I guess we can't help getting political here, so I'll, I, I will a little bit. I feel like so much of this has to start at the federal level in terms of fixing the, the huge problem, which is the unfair treatment of African-Americans, of minorities in this country. What can the leagues be doing 
more than supporting their players who feel a certain way and starting initiatives. And I don't mean to diminish either of those. They're both important. But what can they do physically with the vast resources they have to as a league, not just as players as we're seeing right now with with their strikes and with games being canceled, but what can the league do to push and and create change at the federal level? Now, the NHL is Canada and the U.S., so it gets a little bit murky, but NBA, uh, NFL, what can those leagues, those massive leagues with huge contracts and huge resources, what could they be doing, should they be doing to, to help exact change i mean even just on the most superficial level you know think about the number of athletes who are not only um allowed but encouraged to be socially and politically active i mean we've had this this phenomenon or this this concept that to do such would be social and and you know career suicide. Um, and you've yeah. had some notable examples of you know, Malcolm Jenkins, who, of course, his prison reform um, action has taken him to Capitol Hill. He has said, you know, nothing is going to stop me from my beliefs and I will be a great football player and I will be a great man, at, you know, concurrent with each other. But that's been a real space of fear for a lot of athletes over a long period of time that they were going to be, um, that their careers would be taken away from them or they would be compromised in some way um, that would be really meaningful because this was not a, we couldn't risk the idea of alienating the fans. And, you know, the Michael Jordan line of, you know, Republicans buy his shoes too. And I think that sentiment really set back um, the advancements because if they didn't feel that the league was behind them and that the team owners were behind them and that they didn't have the support that would allow these movements to move forward, then a lot of it appeared to be lip service. And that, you know, I don't want to minimize, I, you know, I've been involved in the Hockey is for Everyone program. I'm on the board of the Columbus Ice Hockey Club, and I'm, I'm incredibly proud of what we've done. But, you know, you know and I know that hockey is a very expensive endeavor, and it's not something yeah. that if you not support, if you don't have the financial wherewithal, it's going to, plus you have to find ice and skates and it's just not something that comes organically and our, and the the one-off efforts serve a small population, but it's kind of the starfish principle of, you know, I save that starfish, but I can't save them all. And we really need to conceptualize how sports are conducted. I mean, I think the leagues could do a lot for, um, changing the way that we do youth sports and getting away from the travel programs and the, um, you know, the, the, the professionalization of youth sports that really compromises kids' ability to be engaged in sport. And if we started to really look at this as a whole-scale organic effort and not just have a spokesman who goes out and visits schools or one program that we have a catchy name to, but really philosophically look at what are the barriers to people playing our sport, engaging in our sport, attending our sport, being in leadership positions in our sports, training people to be general managers and working in the front office and coaching, then all of those spaces would open up to um, what you know to, to people of color. Where right now the barriers um, may just be too great, except for the the few that that can overcome uh, a lot of the financial and other limitations. Yeah, you mentioned Tommy Smith, John Carlos earlier, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, I'm always amazed at, at I as a kid i remember hearing people speak awfully about muhammad ali and when muhammad ali died you heard nothing but praise for muhammad ali i've been people look at tommy smith and john carlos now almost unanimously as heroes of the cause from 1968 um and i've been personally 
floored by how many people seem to have come around on Colin Kaepernick. Are we getting be- any better at this, at recognizing what's right when it's right in front of us? You know, that Colin Kaepernick thing is awful fresh, and the, and the turn came awful recently. So I'd love to say yes. But, you know, I, I had the, the incredible gift of having a dinner, and, I, and we had a, a, an event where we hosted um, both Tommy Smith and Malcolm Jenkins and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Wow. And um, to hear those stories firsthand of what it's like when your entire life is compromised because of your beliefs when when you are shunned by your peers and your career is cut short um you know it's giving me chills just to think about what they went through and you know if you would have asked people six months ago i don't think they would have had the same response to colin kaepernick that they have today so i do think that we're in a in a transitional moment from a societal standpoint i think that we are seeing such a mass of numbers and high profile people people whose voices cannot be silenced by saying they're not good enough quarterbacks to play and that's why they don't have a job um, or you know whatever ridiculous reasons that we give for why we silence people there's always a way to silence someone uh, for a reason that is not accurate um, but this cacophony of voices is so strong right now it is so prominent it is in, in embracing so many leagues and you know what one of the real benefits I think they that the, this voice has is we just lived through a period where we had no sports and and you know what it felt like I know what it felt like it, it felt like I mean it, we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's many reasons why we're suffering, but it felt like the world was coming to an end when we did not have this thing that brought us all together, this common, you know, this, this language that we could all speak and this experience that we could all share and this outlet that we could all enjoy. And right now they have the ability, the athletes to take this away from us if we're not going to listen to the message that they have. And I think that that might be the ultimate aspect that could move us all forward in this great time of need. Nicole, do you, um, you and I have talked about this a lot offline as well. Um, How do we, do you have communication tips for us? How do we reintroduce empathy for our fellow human in this? Is, uh, Is there anything we can do, any tips whatsoever? You know, we really need to make sure that the that the voices are amplified, that we do everything we can to stand up for what's right, even though it may challenge us. You know, you and I, you and I on, on social media, you know, we've had our fair share of um, incredible unpleasantness. And we, and that's not the real world, although it, it often seeps out into the real world, but we can't stop. We can't stop advancing that which is right, advancing, you know, the, the viewpoints that, that are going to um, to really transition us as a society, there's going to be haters no matter what venue that you're operating in. And we see now there's never probably, I mean, not never, but in our modern history, there hasn't been a more divided nation than we have right now. Um, but, you know, we, we talk in, you know, I teach journalism at Ohio State. And when I started, uh, it's been 10 years this year that I've been there full time. And when I started, I would teach my students to be objective. Got to be objective, got to be fair, you got to be accurate. And you know what? I've scaled back objective because objectivity in the face of things that are absolutely wrong doesn't advance any conversation or dialogue or cause. And I'm not saying that we advance our causes in a in a biased way, but to give equal and opposite viewpoints that are clearly um, not the space that our society can afford to go in 
doesn't benefit anyone. So to allow hate to fester or to allow um, the shut up and play ideal to just continue to be, um, you know, part of our, our, our conversation and our vernacular, it, it can't exist anymore. We can't advance that. So the more that we can do to amplify these voices all across platforms, all across communities, all across environments, um, not just in any one specific area. And, you know, people of respect, you know, both of you have audiences that greatly respect you. They may not all believe politically the same way, but you lending your voice to um, to this space and, and advancing it as an area that is important that we all move forward in may just nudge people in a direction that they may not have gone on otherwise. And I want to I want to dig into that not objective comment because you know obviously there's there's great criticism of media and journalism. Can you just exp- how, how does a journalist do that ethically, right? Because you're not, you said this we're not talking about bias, but but how do you challenge us, your fellow journal journalists, your students? To practice what you just described, it's a the tenets are fairness and accuracy, mm. and and being fair is different than being objective, and being fair is is representing you know the sides of an issue that will advance conversation, and you know whether you side on the on the red side of, of politics or the blue side of politics, it's not going to help any of us to only focus on the blue or only focus on the red. So you know in that case, the fairness says that I'm going to move forward both of these these sides and you're going to need to make a decision one way or the other. But when it comes to things like white supremacy or, you know, the other aspects of of, um, anti-racism that we're seeing to advance those sides as an equal to the sides of, uh, you know, of of disputing misogyny or disputing racism or disputing anti-Semitism or any of these areas, there is not, and we cannot be equal and move those two things forward. We can be fair, though, in representing the circumstances that we're in. Nicole, my last question for you is, I mean, you mentioned this already. Uh, We have seen acts of verbal, um, I don't want to say violence, but verbal attacks. You have mentored and taught students who were actually physically attacked in some of the earlier protests in Columbus this past summer. People might be watching this. People might be listening to you and hearing this call to say, make space make voices louder, but it looks scary, right? Because you see some of these communications, you see some of these actions, it looks scary. How do you prepare someone or what are your words of advice for someone who wants to be part of this um, in terms of managing the hate that they might see going on or the hate that they anticipate or the hate that they might get directed back at them when they when they choose to, to move this ball forward? You know, I really think about... Um even in in the circumstance that that you and I were in recently where we posted something that got a great deal of pushback. Um, You know, I think about the people who fought for civil rights. I think about the people who, um, you know, when all throughout time, you know, we fought against discrimination or we fought against tyranny or we fought against just people abusing other people. It takes incredible strength to do that and a willingness to stand up and be counted. And I think, what I advise my students is to stand up in the way that feels comfortable for you. Um, you know, I don't post anything on social media that I'm not a hundred percent behind and I will take the, the brunt of what I receive because I believe it. And I know that it's important for me to send it out there. 
Um, the same way when my students stood out and were pepper sprayed in the face by Columbus police, um, they knew they were in the right and they knew that standing there was the difference between people knowing what was really happening on the streets of Columbus and not. So I think, you know, we're at a moment in time where there, we can't encourage people to sit on the sidelines and wait and see what happens. We need to unify, we need to, to, to take a stand and we need to do it in the way that feels comfortable for us. So maybe that's a retweet of, you know, some position that you agree with. That's a pretty, you know, relatively benign way of getting engaged in things, but it still advances it to the people that you're, that follow, that are part of your community, or you post something on, you know, whatever social media that you engage with the most, or you start a conversation with your relatives who believe and feel differently than you. And even those small bits of, um, of communication, those, that opening of the door, that willingness to listen to people. Um, you know, I may not believe the same as you do politically, but my, my willingness not to say, oh my God, you're an idiot, I can't believe you said that, but instead say, wow, I'm, I'm hearing you say this, can you kind of walk me through what you're thinking and walk me through how you, know, you came to this viewpoint and help me understand it better is a much more effective method than just telling someone they're an idiot. So our, if we could just, and what we teach our students is this ability to actively listen to people and to open your mind to that everyone has a reason why they do what they do. And if they don't, try to talk through if, if it, perhaps there's another direction that might benefit them more. Um, and I think if we can start to do that from a sports perspective, we can, you know, I, everything I've tried to do uh, with the work I've done with the Columbus Ice Hockey Club is that very thing is to, is to help people understand that we live in a society that can often divide itself without meaning to and and we need to be the ones that unify not enhance the division nicole i've been wondering this for a few years now i i can't remember exactly when it happened at northwestern but it was probably 10 or 12 maybe 15 years ago now where the northwestern football team um considered unionizing uh that was sort of the first sort of um kick at it but i'm starting to feel like like college players, football players, especially during this time, are being um, almost nudged toward it, and it, it's it's a um, a discussion that that both sides can almost no longer avoid. Where I think some players in in college football, especially, it'll come to basketball eventually if we're continuing to fight this um, virus well into the winter. Um, but I, when when are college football players, and it's it's a different animal because they're only in college for a short time, they aren't paid, the the colleges have them uh, really at a disadvantage. They have no choice but to play college football if they want to play in the NFL. So they have to play by the rules uh, that other people don't necessarily have to play by. Uh, but I'm starting to, to feel a sea change where college athletes maybe – are starting to recognize how much power they have as individuals. And and I'm wondering if, if you're sensing that too and where it might lead here in the short term. Well, it's interesting because we've only looked uh, in the most recent past at money, right? So we had, you know, should they be paid? And, you know, what constitutes, uh, you know, an athlete and, and, you know, putting student in front of it doesn't just, you know, miraculously take away the professionalization that we've had at, at our, what we would consider our revenue sports. Um, so you, then we dealt with name, image, and likeness. So the NCAA and, that, and the schools are working to get students 
compensated for their name, image, and likeness and you know, working through those details. And we thought, okay, we're making progress. And then uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and, and, and other uh, divisions have canceled football. And now suddenly I think those student athletes are realizing that their voice is not as powerful as they thought it was. Um, you know, this idea that they have come out and said, look, we want to play. And, and I have the gift of uh, working with many of our student athletes. I, I teach many of them in the summer. And, you know, there was no question in the mind of, of any of the ones that I worked with that they wanted to come here and play and they would have done anything to play their sport. And that that's across the board from, you know, people who played football to field hockey to soccer. It, they were, they're athletes and they want to be able to engage in their sport. So when the, the Big Ten specifically said, you know, yeah, you're not going to do that. I think they were like, wait a minute, like, this is about us. And they're like, yeah, it's not actually about you. And that's when I think this is the shift that I think you're feeling and why it's not the individual anymore about, you know, whether Justin Fields can make money off his image while he's at school or, you know, the individual, but it's now this collective team saying, you know, the parents are saying we want to play. The players are saying we want to play. Uh, Nebraska players just filed a lawsuit against uh, the NCAA right. to allow them to play. So um, this is this has now become a unifying force of, you know what, individually our voices were not that strong, but it's going to get a lot stronger and it's going to get a lot stronger quickly. Yeah, I just figure that that's such a tinderbox with coaches making Oh, yeah. oh, five, six million assistant coaches making two and a half million yeah. strength, strength and conditioning coaches making over a million dollars a year. And and the athletes who are feeding all of it can't get paid. I, I get it. I get amateur sports, but it stopped being amateur a long, long time ago. Um, oh. Last question for you. I have a question from Rachel Buells via Twitter. See, Twitter's not all bad. Uh, earlier this week, NBC's Mike Milbury made a comment about women being distractions. <laughs> you haven't even heard the question yet. In men's sports workplaces, what advice do you have for young women looking to thrive in such environments? Well, I want to say hi to Rachel, who, of course, was uh, worked at the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, she was an editor at The Lantern and an outstanding uh, student journalist at Ohio State. Um, my advice is to keep going and keep and, and not tolerating the behavior that we all know and we all see. And, you know, if the, the reason that Allison is laughing so hard, she probably would have shot milk at her nose had she been drinking it, is that, you know, we both stood up and said, this is misogyny at its finest. This is not acceptable, but it happens all the time. And we've, we've heard it. We've seen it. We've both experienced it multiple times um, in our professional careers. And when we stood up and said, this is not acceptable, we were both called names that I assure you, my father would not have been pleased to hear me be called. Um, and that, you know, the, the vitriol that came our way by standing up to that, but we have to stand up for it because there is, there is no way to, con to move forward unless we move forward as a unified front. And the women who have um, really forged an incredible path uh, the people who come before us and hopefully the people who will come after us deserve for us to continue to stand up and fight the misogyny that is often inherent in professional sports. It was built by men. It was, you know, fostered by men. It was um, an old boys network for such a long period of time. Those things are hard to break, but with continued force, we will continue to move it forward. And I personally, and I know I speak, for, I hope I speak for you. I know I do. We're not going to stop until the path is clear for the women who come behind us. That's awesome. Allison, Nicole, thank you so much for your time. Yes. Thank you, Nicole.
I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I love listening to you guys and I'm honored to be here with you. Well, awesome. Again, hopefully next time it'll be a silly, goofy talk about hockey and the Columbus Blue Jackets. I want to come back for that one. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, the, for the days. Uh, thanks again so much. And, and uh, folks, we'll be back with you again on Tuesday. Thanks for listening, as always. Uh, keep checking out the site. We've got content continuing to stream. And we'll talk to you then. 